Hi, I'm Jacqueline Kinser, and for the past five years, I've been helping families all around the globe to overcome their breastfeeding challenges. And this is the first non-clinical breastfeeding podcast that shows you how to rock breastfeeding and master motherhood through practical tips, mindset shifts, and honest conversation to create a confident and empowering breastfeeding journey. This is the Breastfeeding Talk Podcast. Welcome back to the Breastfeeding Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Jacqueline Kinser, and today I am excited to bring to you a very special guest. Uh, Dr. David Stukas is someone that I followed on Instagram for a little while, and I was actually super sad when he came to my city to give a talk at a conference, and I missed it. Um, I sort of fell out of the loop of in-person events during the pandemic, and so when he came, I was so mad at myself that I did not know he was coming to speak, but that's okay because I got to chat to him on the podcast. So if you don't know who Dr. Stukas is, he's a professor of pediatrics in the Division of Allergy and Immunology at Nationwide Children's Hospital and the Ohio State University College of Medicine. At his institution, he serves as the director of the Food Allergy Treatment Center and associate director of the Pediatric Allergy and Immunology Fellowship Training Program. Dr. Stukas is a member of the Board of Regents for the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, the social media editor and host of the podcast series for the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, and is one of 12 invited members for the Joint Task Force for Practice Parameters for Allergy and Immunology. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at AllergyKidsDoc. We've got that linked up in the show notes for you, where he has amassed over 45,000 followers. What I love about Dr. Stukas is that he just brings us back to a sense of reality. He is so clear on the science and the evidence. His podcast is phenomenal for anyone who wants to nerd out and dive into the world of allergy. So what we're going to be talking about today specifically is food allergy and allergies related to babies and breastfeeding. There are so many myths and misconceptions, and I will be the first to admit that I fell victim to those things over the past years. Um, You know, these last two or three years, I've really become enlightened about just overall scientific studies and principles and things. I think there's a lot of misinformation out there and disinformation out there, and sadly, even clinicians can fall victim to it. So Dr. Stukas is really a light at the end of the tunnel for a lot of us. Um, You may not like everything that he has to say, but nevertheless, what he has to say is true and incredibly helpful. Um, If you are a mom who's wondered, is my baby's reflux or skin issues or diaper issues related to something I'm eating. This episode is for you. Um, He clarifies so much. And I also will say that I think he's just very encouraging. Um, Getting to know him, chatting to him before and after the episode, I would say he's just a really compassionate human being who just wants to see the best for our children and our babies. So without further ado, here's my chat with Dr. Dave Stukas. Well, welcome to the show, Dr. Stukas. I'm so excited to have you here to talk about 
allergies and food issues and babies and breastfeeding. Um, I followed you for a while on Instagram and I just find your posts so incredibly informative and educational and setting the record straight. And then recently started listening to the podcast that you host. So I'm thrilled to have you here. And I'd love for you just to say hello to our audience. We've got a mix of moms and professionals who listen to the show. Tell us where you're from. Tell us what you do. Yeah, well, thank you so much for inviting me. This is going to be great, and I'm I'm honored to be here. Um, I think that hopefully our conversation will provide some insight and some help to to folks listening. Uh, I'm a pediatric allergist and immunologist, and what that means is that after going to medical school, uh, I specialized in pediatrics for residency, and I did an extra two years uh, as a fellow in allergy and immunology. Then I became board certified, and I've been in clinical practice for oh boy, 15 years now, and my career has has shifted a little bit as my interests have changed. I've been at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio uh, for the last 11 years. I actually did my residency here um, and uh, 20 years ago. Oh, my gosh. And over the last 11 years, I initially fell in love with asthma. That's why I got involved in allergy immunology in the first place, because I kept seeing all of these children admitted to the hospital, coming to the ER. And I said, this is such a common condition. Why can't we control this? And then I learned about all the different heterogeneity of it and the immunology behind it and all the nuances. And then I realized a few years ago, that where we were with asthma 10, 15 years ago is exactly where we are with food allergy, which means we are on the cusp of offering very personalized, individualized care. Uh, we're, we're using fancy terms like phenotyping and endotyping to understand the immunology behind people. And I've learned in clinical practice that you can take 100 children with peanut allergy and they're all different in, different, in, in unique ways. So there is no one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to any of this stuff, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that. And now I'm the director of our Food Allergy Center at Nationwide Children's Hospital, which we opened, oh my gosh, 18 months ago. And that's all I do is I get to spend all my time helping families who have concerns about food allergy. In addition to that, I do a lot of work in, in research and quality improvement. I'm involved in our, pref- our professional organizations, and uh, it keeps me busy and out of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Yes, that is amazing. I think your body of work is so incredible and so needed, obviously. Um, You know, one of the reasons why I asked you to come on the show was specifically food allergy and how common, you know, I've seen that come up in our, you know, our practice where, you know, so many moms will, will think that there is an issue that's going on and sometimes it's not, or pediatricians are often very confused about this. Um, And then there's many people that you know, really don't know what to look for. And we're spotting it sometimes as clinicians. And it's certainly not an issue where, you know, I'm able to to diagnose or, or fully assess or examine, but there are some signs that I can spot and then try to make that appropriate referral. And so um, there's so many myths and misconceptions out there, I think, even if you're an adult, but especially when we're talking about children and babies. So I'd love for you to talk about that, specifically with breastfeeding. You know, I, I find it really hard when moms are sort of led to believe that their breast milk is somehow bad, right? Mm-hmm. And that's often just a, a misunderstanding, a miscommunication. And so, you know, how many times have I seen it where, you know, a pediatrician says, oh, let's put your baby on this specialized formula to see if breast milk is the culprit. Well, there's a lot of reasons why you might see a reduction in symptoms with that. And it doesn't always indicate you know, an allergy, there could be something else going on, um, depending on how the baby's being fed, right? Feeding a baby at the breast versus the bottle is a totally different mechanical experience. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we see that, but I'd love for you to, you know, tell me what you're seeing when it comes to 
breastfed infants. Yeah, if I may, let me let me state a very a couple of very important concepts, and I think that'll set the stage for everything. Number one, all of the symptoms that can occur due to food allergies can occur for completely unrelated reasons. Um, so it gets very confusing. Number two, causation is not the same as correlation. And there are many parents, the human mind is programmed to ask questions. And if we see something going on with our child, we are going to ask, why is this happening? We want to find the answer because it makes us feel really good about ourselves and the world we live in. But more often than not, there's a correlation there and not an actual causation. And then lastly, our understanding of food allergy has evolved so rapidly in just the last few years that even if we all uniformly believe something to be true five years ago, there's a chance that our understanding has changed. So even if you were told something and, you, and, and you know, it takes years for all this to get into clinical practice. So our well-intentioned, wonderful pediatricians and internal medicine doctors and other specialists, it's impossible for them to stay up to date with all the evidence. It's impossible for me to stay up to date with all the evidence, but that's part of what I do. And then I have the chance to educate all of them. So it's not right or wrong. Um, it's we do the best we can with the information available at the time, but we now know enough to know that when it comes to breastfeeding and maternal diet, there are very few indications where a mother has to stop eating a food because it's harming their baby. Um, and we need to be really thoughtful about why we tell mothers to stop eating foods, what the expected outcome is in their baby. And as well, we have to discuss what's the harm to that mother and baby if she stops eating certain foods as well, uh, because it's not a no-risk proposition. And, you know, there's a lot of well-intentioned people that say, well, just stop eating this and then we'll see what happens. Well, you stop eating that and then you see no change. So then what happens? We'll take this out of your diet and that out of your diet. And then you're avoiding 12 foods. And then one other last concept, and we can get into more details, is babies undergo such dramatic maturation and change early in life that if they had symptoms at four weeks of age, you could feed them the same exact thing every day, and those symptoms may be completely different by eight weeks of age. So we have to account for what's going on inside the baby at all times as well. So there, I kind of threw a yes. lot at you, but <laughs> hopefully that sets the stage. Oh my gosh, it's deep, but I love it. It outlines exactly where we're going to go in this conversation. And, you know, I think the first two things you said about, you know, symptoms can have multiple causes and um you know we really need to make sure we're targeting the right the right cause that we're finding out doing that due diligence as clinicians right and as parents not sort of becoming a runaway train of oh this is definitely it because my friend had a baby with the same problem and they did this and that fixed it or, you know, whatever it might be, right? Um, and that correlation does not equal causation. So you had mentioned about infant maturation and maybe that's a good place for us to actually start. So let's talk a bit about that, you know, the infant immune system, digestive system, anything you think is relevant there to this topic. Yeah, to go back to what you said, uh, nobody should ever compare their child to any other child. Each child oh, yes. is their own unique human. Uh, it's their story. And and I see this all the time of, uh, you know, parents whose youngest child doesn't do what the older siblings did. So therefore, they think something must be wrong. But from my end, I get to see thousands and thousands of children. So there's a normal variation there. And everything that we deal with in health and medicine, there's a bell-shaped curve. Most people fall within the middle ground, but then we have the extremes on both ends. There are people on the extremes. Those are the rare exceptions, but they are absolutely out there. And it's still part of the normal normal distribution. 
So when it comes to babies, things change dramatically. Um, you know, keep in mind that they are inside a water environment where they're literally attached to another human being for nine months. <laughs> and then they come into the world and there's bright lights and the air is very dry and they're they're cold and they're, you know, they, they're forced to fend for themselves. So everything changes dramatically as they adjust to the new environment. This has to do with them feeding for the first time. So their gut has to get used to eating things, whether it's, you know, uh, formula or breastfeeding. Um, um, this has to do with the the ambient environment, so their skin can be very dry. They're going to get all kinds of rashes. This doesn't mean that they're having allergic reactions. This is just their skin getting used to not being inside water or the amniotic sac, I should say. And then, you know, their immune system is going to change dramatically as well because a lot of um, what they start out with in life, they have their own baseline immune system, but they also get uh, very, you know, passive antibodies from mother. And as they get older in the first few months, a lot of that kind of goes away. Then they start to develop their own immune system and ramp that up. So they don't have immune deficiency. They're not fragile little creatures when they're first born. It's just their immune system is still developing and changing. And then the cool thing with the immune system is as it interacts with the world that we live in, it's very very dynamic. It's like going to the gym. Our immune systems love to exercise. So as the immune system encounters different forms of bacteria and viruses and germs and things like that, it is going to adapt. It's going to change. It's going to become stronger. Same thing goes with foods. If you haven't been exposed to a certain food before, um, you know, eating it promotes tolerance. Uh, whereas if we avoid it for prolonged periods of time, that's when we may develop risk for having an allergy. Uh, so it's just important to understand all these dynamic influences are going on on a steady basis as, you know, really in the first couple of years of life. Oh, wow. That's, that's magnificent. You know, um, I'd love to touch on what you said about skin and the baby's skin adapting from this, you know, completely wet environment to now a dry environment that's not always the same temperature and all of those things. What's going on with baby acne? Is it caused by hormones? Is it caused by an adaptation to the environment? Uh, is it a food allergy issue? Is it some combination of those depending on the baby? I have, I have so many questions that I honestly do not know. You know, it's not my, it's not my area, right? I don't treat that, you know, but it pops up where moms will say, oh, he has a bit of baby acne. That's from the hormones or he has baby acne. He has a cow's milk protein allergy. And I'm like, mm, well, it probably isn't, you know, so black or white. Yeah. Well, I can tell you definitively it's not due to food allergy. <laughs> but I'll explain. So let's, let's take, here's what we know about acne in adolescence. You know, all of us have had acne. At some point, I still get acne every once in a while. It's because of all of our, our pores uh, can be clogged by the, the oils and the sebum and, and things that our body naturally produces. Sometimes bacteria gets involved in it and it um, interferes with it and you get more of a, uh, you know, a pus-like reaction and there's inflammations, all kinds of stuff like that. But, you know, diet is in regards to acne is highly controversial, even in adolescents and adults. Uh, and I know the internet will tell you differently, but the evidence would <laughs> yes. So, you know, baby acne is, I we don't know, is it just a normal part of the skin as it sort of exfoliates and, it, and it's maturing? Uh, is it, you know, partly due to hormonal influences? Uh, you know, regardless, it's, a, it's, it's fine. It's a benign condition. It improves over time. Uh, some babies have it more severe than others. Uh, I guess a cousin to that would be something that we call seborrhea, where kids can get really dramatic flaking of their scalp. Uh, and it can be really dramatic. It doesn't bother them at all. The babies are completely fine. But parents, we don't want to look at our precious newborns and see this on their scalp. Um, that always improves with time as well. Um, so some people just have more dramatic examples compared to others. But the last thing we want to do is really make drastic changes uh, based upon these normal uh, newborn experiences. Mm, yes. And so what you're really referring to there with the scalp is what we commonly refer to as cradle cap. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. 
So, yeah, I know there's, I I know some moms will say it's like a guilty pleasure. They're nursing their baby or they're holding them and they're sleeping and they like, I just, I just can't, I just pick at it and I pick it off. (laughs) Oh, it's it's so satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. You get the comb and you, you know, get it out if they have some hair and whatnot. Yeah. It kind of feels good. (laughs) Get the big chunk off there. Oh, I get it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. We're hilarious creatures as humans. It's so funny. I'd love to talk about too. I I don't know. You can kind of take this whatever order you want to also, but you know, there's that idea, right. Of, you know, the gut, you know, there, there's amniotic fluid, the baby's in the womb and they're getting nutrients through the placenta and all of that. Now they're out in the world and they're going to really be putting their digestive systems to use. And what's going on in those first few days? Maybe you could touch on that. And, you know, is there some significant difference between breast milk and formula? Well, yeah, there's differences in regards to the the nutrients that are involved, as well as you get all kinds of benefit from uh, breast milk with, you know, um, passive transfer of antibodies and other, you know, parts of the immune system and, and things like that. Uh, I do want to say, though, and I, I know you you know this better than anybody, but there's a lot of guilt that's involved if, if mother. There are some mothers that simply can't breastfeed for whatever reason. Um, my wife struggled, struggled when our, with our son who's now 13, and we were both in tears, and we've been down this path. Uh, it's so hard, but there are some women that just can't do it. So I like to make this a guilt-free zone. Um, but when possible, yeah. uh, you know, breast milk does offer, you know, significant advantages compared to, to um, cow's milk-based or soy formula. So just the nutrients involved. But, you know, um, I actually just saw, I saw a consult not too long ago where they were concerned that a breastfed baby uh, was having too many stools and they were too liquidy. Uh, they thought it was something that the mother was eating or some form of allergy. And as a pediatrician, I simply said, that's normal. Uh, you know, <laughs> right. they're, they're not eating solid food. They're not going to poop. Uh, they're not going to have well-formed stools until they really start eating solid foods or until they mature a little bit further. Um, so, you know, it's normal for babies to do that uh, for the first several months of life. And then things are going to change dramatically once they start eating different foods. It's not because they're allergic to it or intolerant to it. They don't have a food sensitivity. It's just normal part of eating, you know, different nutrients and fiber and stuff like that. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, infant behavior. We don't fully understand colic. And, you know, colic, it, it it can be very severe. And boy, when we have newborns and they're not sleeping well and we're not sleeping well and we're exhausted and, and they're screaming their head off, we want to do anything we possibly can to help them. Um, and that makes us susceptible to people selling snake oil. This is where grifters come into play. And this is where people will offer unvalidated, non-evidence-based treatments or cures or approaches. And you'll spend a lot of money and waste a lot of effort, you know, trying to help your baby. And then these people are there to take advantage of. Of folks like that. And it's not just for, for parents of newborns, it's anybody that has a, a condition with no known cure or, or cause or things along those lines. So I just want to recommend caution when it comes to that as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think some things that come to mind that I, I commonly see will uh, be introduction of gripe water and, and, you know, infant probiotics. And, you know, there's another kind of, you know, call it calm, which is essentially like a gripe water, right? Those sorts of things. And what I generally tell patients is, you know, those, those things, you know, really aren't going to treat, you know, if it was a food allergy issue, that's not going to help you. Um, If your baby's swallowing air and that's what's causing that digestive discomfort, that's definitely not going to clear out that air bubble. Like what is the goal in offering Mm -hmm. that? And when you kind of talk about what would be the effect of giving those things, um, most parents go, yeah, I haven't really seen a difference and I've been giving this for two weeks. So they mm-hmm. they often kind of know, but they feel beholden to it. Like if I don't give it, what if things get worse? Uh, and they, they feel sort of locked into that. So I'm glad that you brought that up. 
Yeah, we're all subject to anecdotes from others, whether it's social media or people you know in real life, but anecdotes aren't evidence. Uh, we also don't know everybody's conflict of interest, whether they're making money off of you know selling you these things by telling you their story. And we're all subject to cognitive biases. Uh, my favorite, one of my favorites is sunk cost fallacy. If I spend $100 on a treatment, I sure as heck want it to work, and I'm going to believe it works, even if it doesn't really show good objective you know, proof that it's working. So uh, once you buy into it, it's really hard to, to think clearly and, and, and evaluate whether it's working or not. Yes, so true. And I know you had mentioned, you know, infant stool patterns. Uh, and uh, I'd love for you to talk about that. So what what are the variations of normal for infant stools in terms of color and texture, and especially if they're breastfed, since most people mm -hmm. listening to this will be talking about that. Um, and then also, you know, frequency. So uh, one complaint that I often hear is babies that aren't stooling frequently enough. Um, so maybe let's talk about that for a few moments. The answer is yes, it's all normal. Well, to extent, <laughs> yeah, so, no, there, there are so many variations. You know, it can, it can be yellow, green, yellow, green. Uh, you know, green stool is not a sign of anything bad. Uh, that can be perfectly normal. Uh, brown, it can smell awful. It may have no smell to it. They can poop 12 times a day every time they feed. There's a very strong gastrocolic reflex where when we swallow, uh, it, it causes our intestines to spasm and that forces poop out. It makes sense, right? If you're putting more into the tank, then you have to empty it out so you can make room for it. So there are some people that have a very strong gastrocolic reflex. People who in the morning when you drink your coffee, uh, you know, if you have to go to the bathroom immediately, you know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, frequency doesn't really become too much of a concern. We do get a little worried when babies can get constipated. Um, so, you know, if the stool is coming out and they don't seem like they're struggling, uh, it can be once a day. It can be once every other day. If it's nice and soft, kind of frozen yogurty. Uh, if it comes out real hard or in pellets or they seem like they're in pain as they're trying to go, that's when we are worried that they're maybe, you know, constipated. And then there are some ways that we can try to increase the fiber in their diet or give them some more liquid or things like that. And on the flip side, if they're stooling too much, uh, where they're, you know, having, you know, diet diarrhea and watery stools. Uh, we really worry when, um, then when they're having a lot of pain when they go to the bathroom. So if they're upset and crying or if they're losing weight or failure to gain weight, those are the red flags in babies. Otherwise, there's every baby has their own pattern and the pattern is going to change. So whatever they did today, they're going to do something different two weeks from now. And as I mentioned before, once they start eating solid foods, look out because uh, that is going to, you know, they're going to do some really interesting things then. <laughs> I love that. And that's true for all things, whether it's it's poop, sleep, you know, whatever they're doing developmentally, babies are never doing the same thing, it seems. What about mucus in the stool? You know, this is a big one where I'll have parents think that it's like some giant red flag to see a clump of mucus in the stool. Is that a problem? No, not at all. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't get digested. Uh, again, it goes back to overall. We, we always want to, and when you talk to your pediatrician about this, please, if you have concerns about your baby, talk to your own pediatrician. Don't don't go on the internet and ask questions and don't ask Dr. Google and don't talk to the, the social media group because you're going to get all kinds of bad advice. And, you know, so pediatricians will tell you, oh, okay, they're going to go through, how are they sleeping? How are they feeding? Are they behaving normally? Um, you know, any, and they'll go through the whole global assessment. If everything else checks out okay, it's usually nothing of concern. And, you know, what often happens is pediatricians want to help. And sometimes it seems like, oh, well, if we make a formula change, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll offer something to do. Uh, most of these things in babies are benign conditions that are self-resolved. So if you make a formula change, it's going to get better in two weeks. If you don't make a formula the change, it'll get better in 14 days. See what I did there? It's the same amount of time. <laughs> so I think there's I a lot that. of times. 
a lot of times you just have to be comfortable with reassuring parents. And that's what pediatricians love to do. Re- I do that all the time. Reassure parents. I'm really glad you came to see me today. Um, I want to clarify. I don't believe your child has any food allergy based upon X, Y, and Z. And then I offer alternate explanations and reassurance. Uh, sometimes that's all it takes. Mm, yes, absolutely. You know, you had talked about intolerance and tolerance. Mm-hmm. So there's this labeling of oh, I have, or my baby has a food intolerance. What are people really meaning when they say that? Or or what are the misconceptions around that? Because like you said, if you don't eat something for a long time, you will become intolerant to it, which makes sense when you think about it. So is is there another version of something that is not allergy, but is sort of on the spectrum? Or is it allergy or nothing? Well, all these terms are overused and misapplied. Uh, self-diagnosis is filled with misdiagnosis. Um, and even, you know, well-intentioned pediatricians, they just don't understand the important nuances with this. So it's not like you're going to become intolerant if you don't eat it. But, you know, so there are food intolerances. Well, let's back up a second. Let's talk about food allergy, because uh, I don't think we've defined that yet. A food allergy is when the immune system forms a response against a food. And then every single time you eat that food, no matter what form, your immune system says you don't belong here. The most common type of food allergy is caused by uh, the antibody known as IgE. IgE food allergies cause rapid onset reproducible symptoms every time you eat it, typically within a few minutes, rarely longer than two hours later. It can be any combination of big red itchy hives, swelling, vomiting, wheezing, recurrent cough, or anaphylaxis. If you have an allergy to cow's milk, you really shouldn't be able to eat cheese or yogurt or drink milk because symptoms should occur every time. There are delayed allergies as well that don't involve that IgE, so you're not at risk to having anaphylaxis. There's something called food protein-induced enterocolitis syndrome. It's a mouthful called FPIES, and this is typically in young babies less than a year of age. They eat a food. They're fine. Two to three hours later, exorcism-type vomiting, profuse vomiting, and then sometimes diarrhea, and then they're pretty lethargic afterwards. Um, That's a very different type of allergy, but it's reproducible because every time they eat it. And then there's something called cow's milk-induced proctocolitis, which is the typical definition for cow's milk allergy. And this is an otherwise happy baby, uh, you know, four to eight weeks of age. You change the diaper and say, oh, my God, they have bright red blood in their stool. And this is typically due to ingestion of cow's milk protein. This is also a benign condition. The babies are acting fine. They're not losing weight. They're not vomiting or anything like that. And then transitioning them off of a cow's milk-based formula. And then some mothers do need to stop eating cow's milk for a period of time. That resolves it. And you can give it again. Usually, you don't have to wait till a year. Oftentimes, it resolves by nine months of age. So there's this spectrum of immediate onset allergy, risk for anaphylaxis, and severe reactions towards delayed allergies. But here's the thing that all allergies have in common. They are reproducible. If you want to play detective and you want to figure out if it's an allergy and things are kind of coming and going over time, or it happens one time with this food but not another time, or you have a long list of 20 foods thinking that, you're, is, that your child's allergic to, those aren't worrisome for allergy. Allergy is, is pretty apparent. And it's all based on the history. Food intolerances do not involve the immune system. This is difficulty with digestion. Now, this is where it gets tricky because this may change based upon what you eat, how much you eat, how frequently you're eating it. It may also wax and wane over time. Food intolerances are also grossly overdiagnosed, the most common of which would be lactose intolerance. Lactose is a simple sugar found in dairy products for people who lack the enzymes to digest it. Those foods, the lactose passes through their intestines, sucks water into the bowels, therefore makes you very uncomfortable. Bloating, diarrhea, gassiness, you're pretty unhappy. If you avoid eating lactose, so there's lactose-free dairy products, you don't have those symptoms. If you really want to figure this out, if you think that you're lactose intolerant or trying to figure out if you're cow's milk protein intolerant, try a lactose-free dairy product. 
symptoms go away, maybe it was the lactose. Symptoms still occur, maybe it's the cow's milk protein. And then if you're starting to have multiple symptoms or you have no idea what's going on or there's long lists of foods, then maybe it's not the specific food that's causing all these issues. Maybe it's more of an internal issue. And um, that's where we want to do more of an evaluation. So I covered a lot of ground there. I'll pause. Sorry about that. Oh, that's <laughs> great. I love that you mentioned lactose intolerance. Um, I cannot tell you how many times people have come to me and said, my baby is lactose intolerant. And I'm like, so they wouldn't be able to drink breast milk if that was true because it's full of lactose. <laughs> so it's, it is possible, but it's a rare genetic condition. Is that, that's my understanding. Is that correct? Yeah, there's a couple of types. Um, so there's there can be temporary intolerances. Anybody who has like a stomach bug or a viral gastroenteritis or they get sick for some reason, you can have temporary inability to digest specific foods. On the, the lining of our intestines, there's um, these very fine like hair-like structures and all these enzymes that help digest all of our foods. And if you get sick or, or there's inflammation or something going on, it can damage our ability to absorb those foods. So that can be temporary and that gets better after your body heals. And then you can have the the genetic kind where you simply just have it and it lasts lifelong. I would say, like you said, that's very rare. And we do want to make sure we establish the diagnosis properly. So, you know, I, I get very picky with the terms I use. I think it's really important to clarify the diagnosis. And the reason why is because the prognosis and risk really matters based upon what we're talking about here. Lifelong avoidance, eat it, I'm at risk for having a life-threatening reaction, very different than, you know, I'm not really sure what's going on here. Maybe just take a break from it for a few weeks and then try again. Mm, yeah, I like that. So, you know, you've talked so much about different types of foods and things, and I'd love to talk about that. Um, there's a lot of new things on the market when it comes to food allergy in children. And a lot of parents are wanting to avoid the dreaded peanut allergy. And so I've seen various suggestions introduce peanuts early by giving, you know, peanut powder in a, you know, formula or breast milk or, or somehow mixing some of these things in with solid foods or what have you. Um, again, I agree with you that there's no one size fits all approach. Um, some of those things could be dangerous. Um, mm -hmm. If your infant does have something that, you know, they've never been exposed to this, turns out they do have an allergy or something. Um, so maybe you could talk about that, like in terms of, you know, what is the ideal timing for introducing solid foods when we're talking about the infant digestive system and mm -hmm. potential allergies? And then is there, are there certain foods that we're looking to introduce at certain times or not? That would be really helpful. Yeah. Thanks for asking. So, um, a culture of fear has been created surrounding feeding babies. Uh, there are parents driving to the parking lot of an emergency room the first time they feed their baby peanut butter because they think they're going to spontaneously combust. And wow. we have to acknowledge that. It, it's just like we're feeding our babies here. Um, it doesn't have to be a medical procedure. Part of this is because we used to recommend avoidance of allergenic foods such as peanuts, tree nuts, seafood, milk, egg, wheat, and soy till kids were a certain age, sometimes one, two, or three years of age. That was 20 years ago. Uh, the evidence has evolved and changed dramatically, and we have very strong evidence that shows the earlier we introduce, especially peanut and egg, but other allergenic foods as well, and most importantly, keep them in the diet consistently. That's the best way to prevent allergy and promote tolerance. Ideally, we'd start around four to six months of age. Um, 
Uh, while, but we you know start with other solid foods. Some babies aren't ready to eat solids till they're nine months. Other babies are ready at four months. So start with the typical cereals and oatmeals and purees, uh, and then just start mixing in some of these allergenic foods and keeping it in their diet consistently. We don't want to medicalize that. I don't want you to have to measure this. There are guidelines that were put out. I was one of the you know co-authors on them where we actually have measurements, but those were based upon one specific study. So I don't want people losing sleep if they go four days without eating it or they have to measure certain amounts. But the idea is you know keeping in their diet consistently. Um, there are commercial products that are you know developed that have different allergens in them that you can either mix into cereals or purees or their biscuits or or puffs or things like that. For some families, that this is great for them because you know they're very busy and they're, they're struggling to you know introduce these foods to their babies. But they are you know relatively expensive for a lot of folks. They are not medically necessary. We you always want to promote real food. Um, when it comes to peanut, we want, we don't want to give whole or partial peanuts because they're a choking risk till kids are four or five. But you can use thin. Sure. Peanut- thin to peanut butter with water. There's great peanut flour and peanut powder now. Uh, these peanut puff snacks called Bomba, uh, which kind of started this whole peanut allergy prevention you know, study and research in the first place. Um, but you know, this is really is a paradigm shift in our understanding of food allergy prevention. So we want to get the word out that you know, feed our babies, let them eat, enjoy a bunch of different foods. It is there was never any evidence to suggest one new food every three, four, five, six, seven days. That was all made up by a bunch of very conservative people that was that feeds into the culture of fear. You can absolutely feed your baby 20 new foods today because odds are nothing is going to happen. And even if something does happen, which would be unexpected, then we can go back and figure it out. Regardless, you know, everybody listening, you can do whatever you want to your baby, and 98% of these babies will never develop a peanut allergy, ever. But if 100% of parents out there are, are treating them like they're a ticking time bomb ready to have a severe reaction when they eat peanut for the first time, that's a disservice to the vast majority of people. There are babies that are at increased risk. So those who truly have persistent eczema, um, not that little spot on their cheek that kind of comes and goes over time that gets better with over-the-counter cortisone, but if they have a significant part of their body surface covered in eczema and they're using really you know, potent topical steroids and other medications to try to control it, those are the ones raising their hands saying, I'm at risk to develop food allergies. And those are the ones we absolutely want to get them to eat it as soon as possible and keep it in their diet because uh, we may alter their life by preventing food allergy development. It's not 100% effective. Some kids will still react. Act, but we're going to, you know, on a population level, help more than we're going to hurt. Um, and then the other aspect I want to address is we know that in infants, when they have allergic reactions, very rarely do they have, you know, their throat swell shut or respiratory symptoms. More often than not, it's they get some hives and they throw up once. That's the typical allergic reaction in babies. Uh, so even when it does occur, and we don't want this to occur, but even when it does, it's not nearly as scary as most parents think about. As a pediatric food allergist, I don't get patients because they, they die the first time they eat a food. I get patients because parents feed them and they notice a rash or they throw up and then they, they seek evaluation. Mm, that's so, so clear. And, and I think really just answers so many questions that I think a lot of, you know, parents will have and professionals as well. You know, you mentioned eczema and um, how that, you know, if it's persistent, like you said, not coming and going, that that could potentially put a child in a higher risk category of developing food allergies. Maybe tell us what eczema is, because I do see a lot of misconceptions out there as to what Mm -hmm. eczema is or what might potentially cause it. Yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions surrounding it, and this goes back for you know years and years, and what some of us were taught even during our training. But um, I want to be very clear because it is it is well established. What I'm about to say is not controversial at all, despite what people have heard otherwise. It is well established that eczema is not caused by food allergy. All right, so eczema is a skin condition. 
We know that there are genetic uh, mutations that some people can inherit. About 40% of babies with eczema have a mutation in the skin barrier where the skin cells don't join you know, completely. So what happens is the moisture escapes. As the moisture escapes, the skin gets very dry. And barriers work both ways. So if the barrier is allowing moisture to escape, it's also going to allow irritants and other things to enter as well. So that's when you get the inflammation and things like that. Now, eczema is often the first sign that babies will go on to develop food allergies, or they may develop environmental allergies or asthma. So we call this the allergic march. So a lot of our most allergic children, they start with really bad eczema in the first year or two of life, and then they develop the other allergies. It's not like their allergies are causing the eczema, though. So it's not the reverse causation. It's eczema is the first outward sign of the body saying, I have allergic inflammation going on in my immune system. And then as they get older, that's how they develop the other allergies. So eczema is a skin condition. It is chronic. Uh, for most children, it's gone by the, you know, the first or second birthday. It waxes and wanes over time. There are so many environmental influences on eczema because it's the outward part of the body. It's the skin. So what, the, what does the skin interact with? It interacts with the air, anything you put on the skin, and most importantly, lack of moisturizer. So as I mentioned, eczema is dry, dry, dry skin. You, you can't put enough good moisturizer on the skin. We want to replace the moisture using very thick, unscented emollients, you know, stuff that you have to scoop out of a jar, and then you have to put it on the skin several times a day. Super annoying, really hard to do, but that's the best skincare regimen. We want to avoid any fragranced or scented products, even if they're all natural or if we think that they're helpful, because anything with a scent to it, including essential oils, can be very irritating to eczema skin. Viral infections can make eczema flare. Heat and humidity and sweat can flare for some children. Cold winter air is very dry, so that can be that can flare eczema. The indoor heat, when it kicks in, it's very dry as well. Some, some babies do develop environmental allergies as they get older, so if they have cat and dog allergy and they're exposed to cat and dog dander in the home, that may contribute to their eczema flares as well, or seasonal allergies and things along those lines. We really only consider food as a contributing factor for eczema in those infants with truly severe persistent refractory eczema, meaning they have severe eczema, they're bleeding, they're getting super infected, a significant portion of their body is, is impacted, and they are doing a great daily skincare regimen with all the moisturizers, they're avoiding all the triggers, they're using good you know, anti-inflammatory topical medications, and they still have their eczema. That's when we start to think, well, maybe there may be some limited foods. Let's do a trial avoidance and see if their eczema improves. The way you know it, I stopped eating this, my eczema was completely better, I ate it again, my eczema came back again. More often than not, people are given the wrong information or they're given these large panel food allergy tests that have false positives. They take a bunch of food out of their baby's diet. Their eczema is going to naturally improve anyways because it waxes and wanes naturally over time. You happen to catch them on a period where their eczema improved, and then they take all these foods out of the diet, and what happens again? The eczema is going to flare because it's going to flare from other reasons, and then they start taking more foods out of the diet. Or lastly, what's really heartbreaking, this is well-established. We know that children, infants with eczema, if they're eating a food and they're not having immediate onset hives or swelling or vomiting, they're not allergic to that food. If you do a bunch of IgE food allergy tests, they will have false positive test results to that. If that baby stops eating that food that they were actually tolerating and they avoid it for a period of time and go to eat it again, about 15 to 20% may develop food allergy then. That means we are causing food allergy in somebody who is tolerating a food. It's heartbreaking. I see this every day, and it's 100% avoidable. Mm. Oh, my gosh. I am so glad you you started to talk about that because there's a couple of things that I'd love to have you explain. One is 
you know, you kind of just said there, there can be false positives with that. So what kind of testing options are there for infants, especially when it comes to allergy? Are any of those valid? Is it just, you know, that, okay, we know those symptoms are reproducible based on, you know, X, Y, and Z things. Are there other things that we're looking at? And then also to that point that I've seen some various um, tests come out on the market for moms to test their breast milk. And as far as I understand it, I know there's one where it detects food proteins in the milk. Well, as far as I know with lactation, we're supposed to have some food proteins enter the milk because that is a way of exposing our baby to various foods. Um, and I don't think that there's anything that says the breast is not supposed to allow that in there when it produces milk. Um, so is there any accuracy to breast milk tests? Um, and maybe you could speak to that. It goes back to the diagnosis. What is the diagnosis? Oh, take a bunch of foods out of your diet just to see why. What's the diagnosis? Why am I avoiding this? Why? What? What right. is my actual diagnosis? So when it comes to IgE, immediate onset food allergies, we have very valid skin and blood tests that measure. They look for the detection of specific IgE antibody to a food. They should only be used when the story suggests, when I eat this, I have rapid onset hives or swelling or vomiting. These were never designed to be used as screening tests because they do have false positives. So some people say, well, they're not very, they're not very accurate. They are imprecise, but they are accurate when used properly. They mm -hmm. are very inaccurate as a screening test. You can't just test for a bunch of foods and find out what comes back positive and diagnose allergy. That's backwards. That's not how it works. Um, so you have to take a very detailed clinical history first. So there's at-home IgE tests that are marketed. That's not how we diagnose allergy. You start with the history. If I'm eating a food not having rapid onset, hives, difficulty breathing, swelling, anaphylaxis, I'm not allergic to that food from an IgE standpoint. The other important concept is there are delayed onset food allergies that I talked about before, cow's milk-induced proctocolitis, FPIs. IgE tests are useless for those conditions because they're not mediated by the IgE antibody. We don't have good tests for those. So sometimes it is based upon the history and a trial avoidance period, sometimes even reintroduction. And then that's it. As far as validated tests, I mean, there are some, you know, breath hydrogen tests that can be used uh, to look for lactose intolerance. Those are, um, you know, typically offered in the hospital setting. Uh, they're, they're kind of, you know, technically challenging to do in the outpatient setting. Um, but all these other things that are marketed, food sensitivity tests, uh, these aren't validated. These, these measure IgG antibody, which is not IgE. IgG is a memory antibody. If you eat a food, you will form IgG to that food. All these tests show you are what you've eaten in the past. There are no normal reference ranges. Uh, and if you see anybody who does these tests, nobody comes back with a completely negative test result. That's not what these tests show. These tests are just showing what you've been exposed to. But then the people who market it flip around and say, oh, this must mean that you have a high sensitivity or things like that. Uh, muscle testing is offered. There's different types of blood testing called mediator release testing, which is not validated as well. Uh, there's chiropractors that do all sorts of weird manipulation and testing to diagnose. None of this is validated. And here's why validation matters with a test. Validation means, this is very simple, the test went through rigorous studies that shows three important things. One, everybody with a condition will have a positive result. Two, those without a condition will have a negative result. So that means we can differentiate those with and without a condition based upon the results. And three, the same person takes the same test over and over again, you're going to get a consistent result. So without that validation process, these tests are meaningless because they're all over the place and we don't know what means, what means you have a condition or what means you don't have a condition. So for any mother out there that's going to test their breast milk, I go back to the basics. Why am I doing this? Why? What's the diagnosis for my child? And then as far as those tests, I honestly have no idea whether they're valid or not. And my suspicion is they're, they're probably not you know, going to be of much use. Um, even when it comes to food allergy, I, you, know, you can have the most severe 
food allergy in the world. Life-threatening, fatal anaphylaxis if you eat it. But even then, everybody has their own threshold, meaning you, there, there's different thresholds of how much protein somebody needs to eat to cause a reaction. Um, and you know, there's very few people that are exquisitely sensitive to trace amounts cross contact. So there's a threshold that's involved there. Uh, so that's another thing that can be teased out for those people who have legitimate food allergy. But I would go back to what you said about the breast milk. If there's some protein in there, well, so what? Is, is it enough to cause a problem? And even so, what's the diagnosis? Right. And I think my problem with that method of testing is that it has nothing to do with the baby. One baby mm -hmm. could consume that breast milk and be perfectly fine. Another baby could consume it and have problems. Um, and then even if there are problems, do we know that it's a food allergy or is it something else? And so I don't know why we would just in a vacuum. It, that would be like testing a carrot and wonder if it's causing a food allergy. Shouldn't we test the baby uh, who's eating the carrot? <laughs> like, right. I doesn't, it just scientifically, I don't know how that would make sense. So thank you for your clarification on all of the different kinds of testing. Muscle testing, I think is a big one that I see come up in the quote unquote holistic community as well and in chiropractors and naturopaths and, um, you know, doing all these various tests or, or protocols and, and things of that nature that, you know, for the most part really aren't needed. Like, you said. Um, you know, one of the things I see too is when, you know, like you said, eczema is not a, a food allergy issue as its root cause. Um, but when babies do have eczema, I see a lot of parents really hesitant to treat it using steroid creams. I'm making the assumption here that they've already been given that direction by the pediatrician or, or whomever um, to do that proper skincare, like you said, you know, put that moisture back into the skin, avoid fragrances, all of that. Hopefully that's been done. If your baby needs something, you know, we want to make sure that they're getting what they need. Do you think, you know, maybe it's different, you know, how you practice and whatnot, but what you see, are steroid creams overprescribed for infants with eczema? Are they underprescribed? There's there's kind of a lot of fear, it seems, around that. Like, once you start, you can't stop. So let's chat about that, too, because I have a lot of parents having questions, and I just go, this is not my area. Please go back mm -hmm. to your pediatrician who prescribed this cream. Um, but I see a big, big hesitancy there on on some of those treatments. Yeah, oh, steroid phobia is, is is rampant, and and rightfully so because steroids do have side effects. Everything we do has side effects. You know, I like to talk about when eczema is inflamed, meaning that you get really red, rough, thick areas of the skin. What's the what's the risk and side effect if we don't treat that inflammation? Well, the side effect is very real that you're going to have long time scarring. Uh, you're going to you're going to lose the pigment in the skin. You're going to have discoloration and and put that you know child at risk for infection as well. So there's there's real you know there's there's consequences to consider if we don't treat the inflammation adequately. When it comes to the steroids we use on the skin, there are various potencies, um, and the higher potency that you use, the it, the higher risk for side effects. And the side effects typically occur with more long-term use, and most often it's involved in the skin. So you can get some thinning of the skin and, and some discoloration and scarring. Um, so we want to be we want to be thoughtful about when we use this, just like we want to be thoughtful about anything that we do. But not everybody needs that those high-potency steroids. Even when we do use them, you know they can be very safely used for a couple of weeks at a time and then stop using them. And then this is where we talk about how things have evolved. For any parent out there that doesn't want to put a, a topical treatment on your child with eczema, 
ask your pediatrician or dermatologist or allergist for non-steroid options. We have so many different options now that are really effective. We have calcineurin inhibitors like Protopic and Elidil that have been around for over a decade, if not longer, that are very effective and they don't have any steroid at all. Um, and they're very safe to use on the face and no cause thinning of the skin and things like that. Um, there's a newer one called uh, Crisabarol, which is a, it inhibits prostaglandin D2. That's a topical ointment that you can put on the skin as well that treats the inflammation. There are biologics uh, called um, dupilumab, uh, which blocks part of the, uh, you know, the, uh, path, the immuno immunologic pathway involved in eczema, where we can give an injection into the body and target that part of the immune system that has no steroid whatsoever. Um, there's other things looking at JAK inhibitors and small molecule. I mean, this is just in the last nine months, I think there's four or five new treatments, all non-steroid that have been approved to treat eczema. So don't suffer. You don't have to suffer. There is help available. And if your pediatrician isn't aware of it, talk to a specialist. Um, that's what we do. We stay on top of all this stuff. Yeah. Sorry, you got, you got me all oh, excited. No. <laughs> it was a, a good question. soapbox. Well, <laughs> it's funny. I'll link up your podcast, but I just listened to an episode where you talked about some of these biologics and it was a, you brought a doctor on to share a summary of those. And I was just so fascinated um, because I've been introduced to the world of biologics through my hobby of listening to podcasts about virology and, and COVID and all of that. And there are, like you said, there's, there are so many more options now for all different things out there. Um, and it's really, really cool. I actually have a former client um, whose husband is battling a blood cancer right now. And to, when she sends these, you know, email updates about all of the treatment he's going through, I'm in awe. I am in awe that we have that available and he is doing so well. Like, it's absolutely incredible to me. So um, I love what you said about there are other options and, you know, th new things are being created and approved all the time. So that gives me a lot of hope for sure. Yeah, I just uh, would love to also ask, you know, we talked a little bit about cow's protein. Can we talk about gluten? <laughs> because yeah. so many people think that gluten is this massive problem. And if, you know, everyone's just going to become intolerant or allergic to it at some point, now we have celiac disease. What is going on with that? Is this a problem that we're seeing in infants who are breastfed? Um, because I'm hearing a lot of ideas that parents have out there. Let me start by saying that the gluten-free industry is a billion-dollar industry. Okay, which means they have the money, they have the marketing, they have infiltrated our lives to try and influence all of us into thinking that gluten is the cause of all that ails humanity. Now, there are people who have a medical reason to avoid gluten, which is basically the same as wheat. Uh, if you have celiac disease, about 1% of the population has celiac disease. This is an autoimmune condition where if somebody's eating gluten, their body forms antibodies against their own self. Uh, and you can have any myriad of symptoms, which can be quite severe in many people. It can affect your nervous system. It can affect your skin. It can affect your GI tract. Um, once it's diagnosed and you stop eating gluten, the body generally repairs itself, and then you do fine on a gluten-free diet. Um, but you have to have proper diagnosis, which often involves a biopsy of the small bowel, but there are some blood tests that may be useful as well. Uh, so if you have concerns about it, talk to your doctor. There's wheat allergy, which goes back to what I said before. There are people that when they eat wheat, they have IgE allergy to it. So they have rapid onset hives or swelling or could have anaphylaxis. Again, we can properly diagnose that through the history and through testing. There is a condition known as non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which is somewhat controversial. Uh, there are people who don't feel well when they eat wheat. Uh, you take it out of their diet and their symptoms improve and they eat it again and, and it comes back again. 
that's pretty much it for the most part. Uh, everything else is, you know, if you go anywhere online, they will attribute any symptom imaginable to the ingestion of gluten. Did you have a poor night's sleep? Did you have, you know, did you forget a sentence the other day when you were talking to somebody? Did you ever lose your keys? Did you blink more than three times in a row? Did you sneeze more than six times this week? You may have a gluten sensitivity. And then they sell you some unvalidated test or whatever. So look, even, yeah. if, even if you want to figure this out, if you're truly worried about a specific food, completely take it out of your diet. But just do it for like two weeks. You don't have to do it for the rest of your life. Pick one food at a time. Be as objective as possible. What symptoms am I having that I attribute to this food, whether it's frequency of bowel habits or whatever? Be as objective as possible. Did those symptoms completely resolve within a couple of weeks? If not, it probably wasn't that food. If they did, eat the food again and then see if the symptoms come back again. Um, that's the best way to figure this out. But a lot of people don't take the time to do that. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think you said there's just this culture of fear that's been created around food in general. And it almost is almost, I, I don't want to, you know, put it in that category, but I think sometimes certain behaviors belong in that category of eating disorder, where we've seen it, mm -hmm. you know, especially with people just following very strict diets, right? Like paleo is a great example, for instance. Um, low fiber diets are generally not healthy for us as human beings. Um, everybody is an individual. Maybe that's appropriate for you. But for the vast majority of people, um, you know, fiber is really important for our digestion, for prevention of certain cancers, all of these things. If you're cutting that out and just, you know, eating certain foods, then, you know, that could be problematic and potentially creating some issues of tolerating other types of foods should you choose to, t you know, change your diet later on. So there's mm -hmm. all these rabbit holes that are available, um, you know, all these different things that people are being sold, you know, this juice cleanse, this protocol, this detox, this supplement, this type of food. And I cannot believe that the gluten-free industry is as huge as you said for, you know, a very, very small percentage of the population that really truly needs that. So we've, we've gotten into all of these ideas, you know, we'll look back at this 20 years from now and go, oh, what are we thinking? You know, yeah. well, <laughs> just it, like it, kind of the, the low fat sort of, you know, praise that was going on in the night. Everything in my grocery store as a kid was low fat. Um, meanwhile, as a child, I probably shouldn't have been eating a low fat diet. Yeah. No, and it, it's not that far of a stretch for a lot of people to make this connection. And so if you think about a lot of the symptoms attributed to gluten, people say, I, just, I feel sluggish. I feel tired. I don't, I don't move my bowels very well. I just don't feel, I don't have a lot of energy. Well, gluten is often present in a lot of, you know, highly processed foods. Uh, and if you stop eating, if you're eating a lot of pasta and bread and, and other things, things, um, you're going to naturally just feel better uh, because these are these are a lot of foods that are pretty heavy and they have high glycemic indices and, and things like that that just make you tired. Um, I saw a consult. This is when I was in training 15 years ago. Uh, um, this, this person said, I'm really worried about food allergy. Well, what's going on? Well, every day um, I, I'm in my office in the afternoon and I can't stay awake. I'm like, okay, um, well, what's going on? Well, I said, well, you know, what do you, what do you normally eat for lunch? Well, I have, I have a big bowl of pasta, um, some bread, and a little bit of a salad, and then I'm just so tired. And I said, that is not an allergy at all. Like you, you are loading, you're, you're crashing and burning with your blood sugars and your glycemic index. And like, <laughs> that's what's going on here. So again, if you have concerns about a sp yeah. specific food, see a board certified allergist, a board certified gastroenterologist, we can help separate causation and correlation and, and really clarify what's going on with you. Mm, I love that. And, and back to babies specifically, if there's a mom who's breastfeeding and she has an allergy, let's say she has a nut allergy, mm -hmm. um, is that something that her baby is likely to inherit from her? 
Yeah, specific allergies are, are not inherited. There's, uh, you know, um, we don't need to worry about just because one family member has an allergy that other family members will have the same allergy. There's great evidence looking at sibling dyads. So an older child with peanut tree nut allergy, if you test all the younger siblings, you're going to see a lot of, you know, false positives, but they don't have increased risk of actually having the allergy to that. But I, I get the concern because if you witness your five-year-old have anaphylaxis to peanut, there's no way you're going to feed it to your baby. Uh, so that's why we're here. I can I can help that. I can clarify. Sometimes we do testing uh, with the knowledge that if it's negative, that's reassuring. If it is elevated, it doesn't mean they're allergic. It means, hey, come hang out with me in my office in a very safe environment. We'll feed it to them for the first time here. Um, so for parents out there, if you have concerns about it, don't assume anything. Go talk to a board-certified allergist. They can help clarify uh, and help you know guide your feeding. Now, the other question, this is where I thought you were going to go with it, is I, I do have parents and mothers specifically that have legitimate food allergies and even anaphylaxis where they want to introduce these foods to their baby, but then they're going to latch onto their breast. So that gets mm, a little tricky. Yes. Yeah. So this is really interesting. And this is where we kind of have to work with each person, you know, on a nuanced level, what's going on. Um, typically having an allergen-free um, meal or snack washes that protein out of the saliva. So say you wanted to feed your baby peanut butter at lunch, make sure they have a snack or something else that doesn't have peanut in it before they latch onto your breast. That should do a good job. Uh, you could you, you can consider something like a nipple shield so they don't have direct contact with the breast, uh, even like a barrier ointment um, or, or something like that. But that, you know, that woman should talk to her own allergist as well. Even then, it would be unlikely for pro, al, food protein in the saliva to contact the breast to cause a severe systemic allergic reaction. More often than not, you're going to have a lot of irritation around the breast. Um, it's going to be uncomfortable, but um, um, you know, there's there's a lot of nuance there to discuss. Mm, that's such an excellent point. I'm glad you you thought to mention that too. I've definitely had that question as well of parents concerned about that. One of the biggest things I see is babies with reflux, and there's a lot of different rabbit holes that people kind of go down once that's happening to their baby. And you know, there's everything from you know, the idea that babies should never spit up to there's normal babies spit up to it's caused by a food allergy or intolerance. Uh, what's your perspective on reflux and how that relates to allergy? Reflux is rarely a medical problem. It's typically a laundry problem. And what I mean by that is it's normal for babies to have reflux. It's completely normal. And here's why. Uh, they're, as we talked about already, they're undergoing significant maturation. Part of that is just the muscle strength and the muscle tone. So the sphincter, the little muscle that wraps around the top part of the stomach and the lower part of the esophagus, for some babies, it's not very strong until they're a lot older in life. Uh, so contents are going to much easier. They're going to come back up and they're going to spit up. The typical story is that you know babies, it can be pretty severe in regards to frequency and, and how much comes out, but they're otherwise usually not bothered by it. Sometimes it does make them upset because it can burn a little bit from stomach juice and, and acid and stuff like that. Um, but this isn't a food allergy. This not this is not how food allergies present. It's also not a food intolerance. Uh, reflux is an internal problem. There are certain foods that may make reflux worse. Here's my example. I am a 46-year-old, um, otherwise healthy male, as far as I know. And uh, if I eat one buffalo wing, I'm fine. If I eat 12 buffalo wings, I have severe heartburn and reflux. I'm not allergic to buffalo wings. I'm not intolerant <laughs> to buffalo wings. I don't have a buffalo wing sensitivity. I don't need to do a test for it. But it makes it spicy food. So spicy foods, greasy foods, um, you know, tomato-based products, citrus, uh, you know, these are all things that can activate more stomach acid and cause reflux to worsen. So uh, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. But if you have concerns about it, talk to your pediatrician. Pediatricians are so good at treating reflux. Sometimes we do recommend some um, anti 
you know, um, acid uh, medication that you can take every day. There's different forms that you can take. Uh, sometimes you can do it sort of as needed, but uh, we don't want to go down the rabbit hole of, you know, specific food elimination or sensitivity testing or allergy testing or stuff, stuff like that based upon reflux. Oh, I'm so glad you clarified that. You know, just a comment from things that I've learned um, from, you know, other professionals as well is that there's uh, something that they're calling aerophasia-induced reflux. So that's for mm. babies that might be swallowing a lot of air mm -hmm. during feeding. And when that air wants to come back up, it can bring milk with it. Um, and so a lot of times babies will be unnecessarily prescribed medications or parents will think it's a food allergy issue when neither of those issues, um, you know, shouldn't they shouldn't be treated because that's not going to fix it. And other times it's absolutely positional, you know, someone... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Parents aren't thinking, you know, and I'm like, well, did you put the baby in the car seat right after they ate or did they did they go down for a nap right after? And then you saw, you know, they're now they're laying down and, you know, the contents of the stomach are, are freshly in there. And like you said, there's some maturation going on and all of that. So I would love for parents to worry a lot less about reflux. And like you said, it's mostly a laundry problem um, if there's a difference between reflux and vomiting. And I think mm -hmm. that's just really important for people to know vomiting can be, you know, obviously a concerning symptom of an infectious disease or an allergy, um, but that is not at all the same as reflux. You mentioned, you know, being able to to find, you know, a board certified allergist. Is there a great way for parents who, let's say, have a history of this and maybe other children or something, or if they do suspect something um, like a directory, you know, from a, a body of professionals that they could go to to look one up in their area that is specifically for pediatrics or infants? Yeah. So both the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology and the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology have online search engines where you can, you can look for a board certified certified allergists in your area. But you, you bring up a key point. You know, I all I do, I, I, I run our food allergy center. I'm a pediatric food allergy specialist. Uh, you can't even get an appointment to come see me for a new consult unless you have concerns for food allergy. So I still take care of asthma, allergic rhinitis, and eczema, but that's not my primary area of focus. So my approach and understanding and, and you know, the research I do, that that's very different than somebody who's just in, you know, private practice that sees a lot of allergic rhinitis and, and other things like that. Not to say they're not going to do a good job, but there, uh, there are different levels of sort of understanding and approaches and things like that. Some of its personality, some of its level of experience, some of its the training received. So, um, in general, if you you know, for more complicated patients, um, being seen at like an academic medical center where we have trainees and um, you know academicians like myself, that's typically where we have more time to spend with some of these more complex patients. Oftentimes, they have multiple subspecialists involved in their care. Um, that's something to consider as well. But no, I, I mean, starting just with a board-certified allergist to see if they can give you you know the guidance that you need is a great place. Hmm. Yeah, that's really good advice. One of the other things that I would love for, for us to chat about too, and it's kind of come up in the background here and whatnot, is formula specifically. You know, most babies who are breastfeeding are also getting formula. And so, you know, formula has, a very, you know, it's FDA approved, very specific ingredients in there and all of that. Um, now, sometimes babies are prescribed soy or hydrolyzed formulas and whatnot. What are are the indications for that? Essentially, something like the the hives and vomiting, or are there other use cases for those specialty formulas? Yeah, it it always goes back to what's the diagnosis. So it's pretty easy in my world um, with IgE food allergies. Every time I eat this, I get hives, swelling, vomiting, anaphylaxis. I'm at risk to have severe reaction. We need to you know find a a, a substitute that doesn't have that protein. Uh, so typically, if they're reacting to cow's milk formula, we can just transition to soy. Soy has no cross reactivity with cow's milk. Cow's milk is 
you know, it comes from a, a mammal, it's from an animal, soy is a plant. Uh, they're, they're different just because they're both in milk doesn't mean they have any relationship. So more, almost always we can go straight to soy. And then we have more of that, you know, cow's milk induced proctocolitis, where you have painless red blood in stores. There's other rare conditions as well where cow's milk may cause gastrointestinal problems from an, an allergic standpoint. And then, yeah, you need to avoid that food for a period of time. You can almost always go to soy. Um, it, I typically try not to go straight to like these very expensive elemental um, amino acid-based formulas, especially the formula shortage we just went through. You know, there's a process in, entailed here where we can figure this out. If you have cow's milk-induced proctocolitis, that the blood in the diaper, it can it can take three to four days for, before that resolves because it has to heal. So if you make the formula change and they still have blood after the next feeding, it doesn't mean that formula is causing the issues. Uh, but there's too many skittish, sometimes even pediatricians that say, oh my gosh, okay, we need to make a change, a change, a change. And you play this formula roulette. So you have time to be thoughtful about it. Uh, and then we have, you know, unfortunate cases with, with children that have severe gastrointestinal disorders where um, they just can't digest foods for whatever reason. So they're on these elemental formulas. So there's different reasons. But it always goes back to the person recommending it should be able to answer very basic questions. Here's why I recommend you make the change. Here's what will happen if we don't make the change. Here's how long we need to make the change for. Here's how we're going to know whether or not we can change back. Right. If they can't answer those questions for you, find another doctor. Yes. Oh, that's such an excellent list of questions to ask. And I would say that more often than not, I see parents initiating these changes, um, you know, switching to a goat's milk formula or a soy formula, hoping that that will resolve issues. Um, and I would say that I am a big fan of, you know, please don't do that without consulting the pediatrician. You could be doing something unnecessarily. Um, and especially in light of the formula shortage, like you said, um, those formulas are harder to come by. And if you are taking that off the shelf for a family who truly needs it and you don't need it or your baby doesn't need it, that's problematic. So we don't ever want to switch the baby's food entirely unless we need to. And I think you brought up some excellent thinking points and questions for people to ask their doctors. Yeah. And, you know, are there people listening right now that said, if I didn't make this change, my baby would have, you know, had severe illness or something like that? Yes. But it goes back to, you know, those are the, ex the extreme examples. Because for every one of those, there are thousands of other parents that made the change unnecessarily because their baby just had some normal variation of what's expected at that age. Uh, so, yeah. Is it necessary at times? Absolutely. But it just goes back to, can we be thoughtful about why we're doing this every time? Just take an easy standardized approach every single time. And, and it's really hard to go wrong. Yeah, well said. Well, you are just a great example of what we are looking for in a well-trained clinician, because these are these are the thought patterns that you're going through when you're working with your patients and you're wanting them to think about these things, you know, not to come to you unnecessarily and, and all of that, right? Um, and not to be stuck in fear and so much. Um, sometimes I feel like it's simplicity, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, we, certainly things can be complex, but let's not make them more complex than they need to be. So I would love to hear, you know, any wisdom or like the best advice that you would want to share with a parent who's listening to this information right now? I deal a lot with anxiety um, and I, I acknowledge it. And there's a kind of a running joke with the nurses I work with of, oh, Dave made another mother cry again. Um, <laughs> and it's not because I want to be mean. It's because I ask some really basic but important questions like, you know, who do you, who do you have to support you through this? Um, you know, do you feel guilty? about harming your baby because of the food that you're eating or something you did during pregnancy. Um, things nobody's ever asked them. And they're, you know, by the way, if anybody out there, if somebody, a physician or other healthcare professional or anybody, you know, tells you that you caused your child to have food allergy, 
just glare at them and walk away. Um, they're wrong. There's nothing you could have done to cause your child to have food allergy, even if you wanted to, not that you would. So I, I really address the psychosocial aspect of this because that makes people vulnerable and really susceptible to some some really bad advice. Um, so I, I hope people out there can take time to acknowledge like what you're going through is hard. You're not alone, I promise you. Um, and just to be wary of anybody who offers miracle cures and you know the anecdotes of, oh my gosh, I did this and my baby was cured. Okay, well, how do I know that you're, it's even real? You're some stranger on social media or some influencer or whoever. Like that's your story and we don't even know if that's true. So take a deep breath. Um, I hope you have a trusted relationship Relationship with your your child's pediatrician or other healthcare professional, and and go to them with your specific concerns. Mm, yes, well said. And I would say, you know, for anybody who's listening to this episode and you haven't listened to the one where I interviewed a pediatrician, Dr. Rebecca Diamond, um, she just gave some great insight and perspective as a pediatrician. And uh, what I loved about her is she's able to acknowledge, you know, that there are some gaps in specific training, especially when it comes to breastfeeding as a pediatrician and whatnot. So, you know, if there's ever anything that you feel like your pediatrician can't answer, you know, ask those questions. Well, where, where can I get help with this? Um, and if you're feeling shamed by your provider, walk away. That is not mm-hmm. okay. Um, I am always appalled when, you know, we even see it as lactation consultants where people will say, well, the other lactation consultant said, you know, you probably just can't do this. You probably can't breastfeed. Some people aren't meant to breastfeed. And I'm like, mm, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, absolutely. There are people that physically cannot, right? But I would never say it like that. I would never put you in that position. Um, So I'm always really sad when I hear that there are good providers out there. And I think that's what you're, we're help, you know, you're helping us learn today. So I think that's excellent advice. And, you know, to that point about anxiety, you know, I think that's something that a lot of new moms are struggling with because of just our, the way we're living, right? There's, there's a massive amount of information coming at us Um, in the United States. Parental leave is, is so lacking. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, childcare is very unaffordable. There's all of these things that are sort of up against us and it's easy to kind of snowball ourselves mentally and emotionally into, oh my goodness, you know, I I have to find a solution quickly, right? We all want a quick fix, um, but it sounds like, Nothing we buy at our local drugstore is magically going to make our baby's food allergies go away overnight if they're truly experiencing yeah. something like that. Yeah. And it, one last thing, if I may, because um, I think this feeds into it of there's great support groups out there. Um, and there, there's oftentimes emotional support that can be helpful. They can offer tips and advice. But, you know, be wary of anybody offering individual medical advice, especially through online forums. I don't do that. I'm very active on social media, as you know. I never, ever give individual medical advice. It's completely inappropriate. I can't do that. I don't know all the details. Even if I did, I, I you're not my patient. I can't examine you. I can't, you know, take the time to answer your questions. So nobody should ever be doing that. You know, there are rare things, and social media has created uh, a very unique way of uh, looking at the world where um, louder voices uh, seem to people get confused with expertise or um, people you could have a condition that affects one in a million people very rare but if you find a support group where there's a hundred of you it may seem like everybody has that Um, but that's not true you just found your people it's still a very rare condition Mm. so I you know these are complicated things to kind of to tease through but I just want people to be aware of that you know social media sort of gives us this false sense of reality at times Mm, That's such a good point. And then, of course, the second you engage with a piece of content on a particular topic, social media is going to show you every post on that topic. So that can certainly seem like a giant echo chamber of, oh, my goodness, this is so common. 
Yeah. Oh, you know, it's funny. We talked before about, you know, food. Half of the internet is yelling at you that food is harming you through inflammation and hidden dangers and gluten and uh, all these other sensitivities and stuff like that. You know what the other half of the internet is yelling? Food is medicine. Use these superfoods. So which is it? Um, so everybody takes their own angle. Um, and if anybody who's offering you medical advice is also selling you products or services, that is a major conflict of interest and a red flag. They don't care about you and your well-being. They just want to make money off of you. Mm, that's such a good point. And I, full disclosure, I do sell supplements too, but I am very careful about the reason I made them was because I've, I've looked at the evidence and I've looked and, and seen what works for most people. Um, and I've been disappointed at a lot of the products in the market as have my patients over the years, but I'm not out there saying that everybody should take it. And mm -hmm. I'm really trying to say, Hey, yeah, if you have a little milk supply, I don't think a pill is going to be the magic fix for you. But if you are doing all of the other right things and, you know, you're having trouble getting enough of the right foods into your diet, so maybe there's some deficiencies there or what have you, like there may be some value in this, but you do need to talk to your healthcare provider first. So it's funny because, you know, a lot of times people will ask me, well, why don't you post this about it? Or why don't you say that more people would buy it? And I'm going, yeah, but maybe not the right people would be buying it. And so it's really hard because I can't control who buys it either, right? Like sometimes yeah. I'm like, oh, you you know, you really didn't need that. I don't know why you're buying this, but you know, people think, right. They think I need this. They think I need that. And you know, it's, it's hard. It's really hard to, to navigate that I will say. Um, and it's hard when I see companies out there that aren't as cautious and we all sort of get lumped in together. Right. And I'm not saying you're doing that, but I'm like, whoa, whoa, no, 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 hold on. That one is actually snake oil. This one is not yeah. so much. <laughs> right, no, but and to your point, it's so hard to tell the difference. I mean, I, I it's do so hard. for a living. Like, it's really hard to tell the difference these days. Um, but what you said really resonates because evidence matters and the quality of evidence matters. Um, you know, studies done in mice, beep doesn't really affect, you know, doesn't really apply to humans. Uh, yes. <laughs> you know, randomized controlled trials or, you know, uh, you know, meta-analyses, much, much stronger evidence. Um, but to your point, um, it's nuanced. And so if anybody out there is saying everybody should be doing this diet or this supplement or whatever, I mean, come on, that's a huge, that's ridiculous. That right. That's that's assuming that all humans are exactly the same. And we know that uh, that's not the case. Yes. Oh, it's such a good point. Well, you are just a wealth of information. And I bet for the vast majority of our listeners, you won't be super interested in the podcast that Dr. Stukas hosts, but it's very good. <laughs> I'll link it up in the show notes. If anybody is, is a clinician and you're wanting to dive in more to the world of allergy and whatnot, he's got some excellent episodes there that are happening. Um, I'll link up your Instagram. You post a lot of really great information out there, busting some myths and addressing some common misconceptions and sharing just really great nuggets of information with your audience. Um, but what you've shared here on to on the podcast today has been really powerful, really informative. I think you've given everybody a lot to think about and cleared up so much. So I appreciate your expertise and insight. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Did you know most moms stop breastfeeding in the first month postpartum? I believe succeeding at breastfeeding means having the right mindset. In fact, studies show that the number one factor that determines breastfeeding success is commitment, which is why I've created my incredible audio download of breastfeeding affirmations, 
where I give you actionable mantras so you can breastfeed your baby with confidence and peace of mind. And best of all, it's free. To get access to this audio and PDF, simply visit holisticlactation.com slash mantras, and you can get started right now.